The Sarah Lawrence Theater Program works, learns, and lives on the land of the Lenape, Munsee, and Wappinger peoples. We pay respect to the ancestors past, present, and future. The Performance Lab podcast is invested in the sharing of knowledge and cultivation of curiosity between makers. We invite guest artists to lead a workshop with the MFA candidates of Sarah Lawrence College. After which, we interview them. We ask questions tailored to their individual practice, delving deeper into the how and the why of creation. Inspiration is all around us. But how do we hone in on the subjects that drive us? They share with us their tips, tricks, and sources of inspiration. Reflect on past performances and projects and keep us up to date on what is next stay tuned for the performance lab podcast hi there welcome to the performance lab podcast my name is marissa conroy and i am a first year graduate candidate at sarah lawrence college in the theater mfa program and i am kenneth kang a first year sarah lawrence theater graduate candidate in the theater mfa program today we have with us tay blow hi everybody a little information about Tay. Tay Blow is a performer and media designer based in Brooklyn, New York. Born in Japan and raised in the United States, Blow's work incorporates photography, video, and sound design with a focus on technological processes and found media artifacts. He has performed and made designs for Big Dance Theater, David Newman, Mikhail Baryshnikov, Jody Melnick, and Deganet, Shemi, and Company. He makes music as frustrator on enemies list recordings. His work has been featured at Dance Theater Workshop, Lincoln Center Festival, The Kitchen, The Public Theater, Baryshnikov Art Center, The Wadsworth Athenaeum, and at theaters around the world. Tay received a Bessie Award for Outstanding Sound Design for David Newman Advanced Beginner Group's I Understand Everything Better. Welcome, Tay. Thank you. And thank you for reminding me I need to update my bio. Uh, we're, we're glad that the, the podcast has that utility for you. Well, uh, to start off, can you tell us a little bit about what you workshopped with us uh, when you came by for the Performance Lab? Yes. So my company is called Royal Osiris Karaoke Ensemble, and I brought into the class a demo on using in-ear monitors to reperform existing material uh, in the style that we do, which is to um, play media from a media server, broadcast it over a radio, and then individuals can receive that audio over the radio and then reperform it on stage. Some people call this meat puppeting. There's a lot of different names for this uh, technique, and it's been around since, I would say, arguably the 1940s, um, but has found its prominence in contemporary theater as well as television and other places where like I remember you mentioned something about like that it felt like channeling almost mm -hmm. like because you would like look at YouTube videos of very popular people and then like almost reinterpret or or move through the or, or talk through them would you want to talk a little bit about that yes wow channeling so we it in my company, we work a lot with this idea of channeling because it it relates in some way to an ancient kind of ukiyo practice uh, that's that that exists in a lot of um, of older traditions. I'm looking around to find a book on it, which I think is over there. But um, you know, for example, like Aleister Crowley would channel the 
you know, there's a lot of occult practitioners that that have used this idea. And I'm really interested in thinking about technology through these kind of mystical lenses, mostly just because I think of, you know, stage performance as as an ancient practice. Um, and so channeling to me is a way of rationalizing it outside of the the, the coldness of the technology and, and thinking about it more as a continuation of a, you know, kind of a witchcraft that we no longer really have access to or that we don't use in our everyday lives. It's kind of weird though. I don't really think about, it's funny that I, that, that you pick up on that or did I say it in the, in the demo? You said it uh, in class. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of a blur. Um, no, it's funny because I, I think a lot about how insane it was to discover it. And like the, like you guys have all done it, right? So the, the feeling of it is very, I'll say it this way. The feeling of it for me when I first started doing it was really wild because you're receiving instructions in one ear and then your body has to just pick up on it and immediately send that information back out by speaking it or moving or whatever. And we started doing this really before, you know, before TikTok, before acapella, before all these sort of lip sync services showed up. And now it feels, I'm actually really curious about from your perspective, is it actually that weird now that it's happened? It's not exactly the same on TikTok, but like this kind of thing seems like an everyday thing now. Yeah, I feel like we see a lot of reenactment happening all of the time, like via TikTok, but there's something very specific about having something fed through your ear because it also like creates this kind of, um, I don't know, it, it, it drowns out the rest of the space that you're in. So it's this like really interesting disorientation of taking in something that's inside you now yeah, and saying it out loud and and not not having a good sense of like the volume with which you're speaking um so so in that way I, I feel like it's quite it's quite different than than the tiktok kind of lip syncing because it's less um, lip syncing and more yeah it's, it's psychically mm -hmm. disorienting yeah yeah so that that for me seems to be like the, the crux of the difference between those two things well i guess in terms of yeah, the actual difficulty when, so after, after that exercise, we all went back and we, and like, I think most of the groups tried it. Like my particular group, we attempted it. We couldn't get the tech to sync satisfactorily. So we like tossed it out, but like, but in doing it, like in just that process of like trying it out, the idea of almost having to get out of our own way, uh, it, it almost felt like our, when we were discussing it, almost felt like our egos were trying to put on some extra thing to what we were listening to uh, rather than just parroting or, or, or just like speaking through whatever it was that was in our ears. So it was, yeah, I mean, there was a degree of difficulty to it that like none of us would experience like if we were just like lip syncing. It, it takes a little bit of time to get used to. It took me an insane amount of time to get used to it. And I think what you're, what you're describing was like the the synchronization between like if you're trying to reenact a video the person receiving the dialogue is always going to be behind the video is that what you mean yeah yeah that <clears throat> there's a lot of there's another layer to it that has to get learned and it i i <laughs> i was hesitant to uh, incorporate that into the demo because it involves listening to two copies of the same audio at the same time, one of which instructs you to, It's this is like, talk about, I mean, I'm very interested in moving as far away from 
traditional naturalistic acting as possible, not because I don't like it or I don't respect it, but because I'm very interested in, in disrupting the actors, the, the performers sort of thought process beyond their immediate intuition, their immediate response to, to stimulus that are not part of a, like a learned play text. And so, so to make it more bonkers, uh, you, and, and there, and many companies do this. This isn't none of the things I'm saying I've invented, but, um, you play one copy and then you play another copy of the audio exactly 500 milliseconds later. And depending on the performer, you change exactly what that time time uh, window is uh, that's filtered so that it sounds incredibly tinny. So what you have is one utterance of the text and then later you have like a really tiny utterance of the text. And so that second one is what syncs up to the video. And then you you basically pull back the audio to anticipate what's going to happen on screen. This is why I didn't show this. This is insane. But you would you would basically pull back the audio so that it anticipates what's happening on screen. So by the time the second utterance comes out, the performer just knows to move their lips at exactly that moment. And this takes like a chunk of time for like a really good actor to nail because basically the goal is to get someone to say something in synchronization with a video that they've never seen or heard before. And so you have to kind of train yourself to just become like a perfect tape player. A tape player is a device uh, from before the... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we're, we're grad students. We remember tape we're the, well. okay. we're also, Sorry. We're the We're the elder grad students in the group too. We're the 30 we're the plus club. <laughs> so we remember tape recorders. That's wild. That yeah, cool. obviously in a two hour demo, it wasn't gonna get there, but um, I'm glad I'm glad you all got a taste of it. So going back to this idea of channeling that Kenneth brought up earlier, I'm noticing that in a lot of your work and in some of the things that I, I researched about you has to do with this kind of like religious overtone of like priesthood of channeling these things. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, if, if you know like what, what it is that kind of drew you to that kind of priesthood aspect of this channeling sure yeah wow i wish my collaborator was here to talk about this with me but um yeah so we so we call ourselves a musical priesthood which just for context everything that royal osiris does is equally a complete joke and a thousand percent serious but uh let's just say this the the priesthood idea comes from a notion that we have, which is kind of unverifiable. I'll just say I I think that anything from ancient history, well, a lot of the a lot of the things I'm interested in ancient about antiquity are kind of unverifiable, which is what makes it so beautiful. But there's this notion, and there's a an artist, a composer named Harry Parch, who writes about this in his massive autobiography, and I have I have it in my course materials. I'm happy to share it with y'all. Which is that what we're studying now, the, the disciplines of dance and the subdivisions of dance and the subdivision schools of music and theater and, and all of the, and writing. And I think I maybe mentioned this before, like used to all be one institution. And in his, in his, <laughs> in, in, and this is in a like pre-Greek, pre-Chinese period. This is what he's sort of describing. And it exists in other, other uh, cultures as well. But this is the, this is the lineage that he's particularly interested in this notion that in 
societies that haven't developed an academy and haven't developed institutions to sort of rend this, these acting from this larger body of, of ritual societal work, everything was one thing. You would, you would, you would make a pilgrimage, you know, in ancient Greece, it's alleged that you would make a pilgrimage from wherever your home place was or take a boat and you would go to this town and then they would divide the people by whatever made sense for this particular ri ritual perhaps it would be gender expression or you know they would they would put you in a specific theater for this particular event and you would see you would witness something you know the the word theater right comes from the ancient word sorry i'm becoming a teacher again but uh do the, the, the etymology of the world the, word theater right it comes from theatron it means to behold something so you would go into this place you would behold this this spectacle and and ideally the the speculation is that this was in order to teach you something so there is a kind of and i associate that with with religious with with a, with a you know, with no judgment, like that, the, there are people for whom the Broadway musical is their religion. And I want to bring that into a different, like, I want to bring that kind of fervor into a different space in, in service of, of, of thinking about how, how an antiquity theater must have functioned or in this dream that I have that I gleaned from the autobiography of this Harry Parch, like there is a um, dimension to it where if all of the arts existed in one giant conglomeration of stuff, and then your entire society went to attend it, whether that's ultimately good or bad, I don't, don't know, but there's something fascinating about that. And now we have all of these strange little disciplines and, and, and subdivisions of that, but we also have a mass media that is a synthesis of many forms. You know, we like everyone more or less in our environment watches a, a streaming service and is seeing the same kind of shows. It doesn't have the, the connotations of religion, but it is more widely attended than most religions are. So that's sort of where that comes from. It's, it's kind of half insanely serious and half trying to point at something that might be missing from our right now time. But if, if you told me like that a theater was a sacred space, like I would have no like argument with you whatsoever um and you talk about like shared experiences and like maybe we are a little further from like yeah everybody's on mass media but i'm not sure if there's like stuff that everybody just automatically has seen like you pick somebody off a off the street and like, I, I, outside of maybe after the game of thrones finale you know? but like <laughs> but yeah no absolutely like uh growing up in a very Catholic country. I mean, it's just, and, and, you know, no disrespect to, to those of the faith, but like, yeah, it's musical theater. Uh, like you come in, the songs are there, you're lifted, you come out, you, you go watch the show, you have that shared experience. And then like, obviously with all the Greek society being centered around theater and theater festivals and stuff. Sure. But, but without getting like too antiquity academic, like we I was noticing. I saw a couple of years, a couple of things. Your YouTube adaptation of Kenko's uh, Tsure Tsuregasa, 
Mm-hmm. Right. Like, uh, yeah, like I was wondering if you could talk to that because it felt very relevant and contemplative. Like it brought me back. And please correct me if I'm wrong, if, if it was like, oh, I remember being locked in in my apartment uh, for an extended period of time. And then like having to contemplate like my relationship with just doing nothing. But I'm wondering like what you uh, what might have been going through your head when you uh, made that. Oh, Yeah. I mean, well, we just filled out the rest of the podcast with this. So Tsurezure Gusa, or Essays in Idleness, is it's like a classic piece of Japanese literature. It's a the, the short of it. It's like a book that uh, was posthumously compiled after a member of the court who was a, a monk in exile, but who chose to to to. <laughs> I forget the word of it, but to have his monkship inside the city in Kyoto, he was discovered. It's it's room and all of this is conjecture, which is the kind of world that I love uh, in about the 1330s was writing. And after his death, uh, one of his friends discovered all of these writings basically glued to the walls of his hut. And so he had been writing this stuff. And, you know, a lot of it's like a very kind of there's a lot of parallels to like diarists of the, you know, like Samuel Pepys, and it kind of feels like a blog, like the guy's just writing like 240 little short things about, and they range from like really, really deep, deep sort of ruminations on the nature of love to like, if a person shows up at your house and they're wearing this kind of pants, like definitely like there, you know, it goes all over the place. Yeah. It does seem to be like, Oh, that's a beautiful, beautiful thought. And this is a Tumblr shit post. Yeah. I don't. So that's been my interest in it. And I, I had a, I had a professor in college uh, named Julie Davis who teaches now at UPenn, who is an amazing, amazing expert in this period of, of Japanese literature and Japanese art history. And um, she kind of got me onto that book and you know it's been, it's always been one of these things where i've always wanted to do something with it and so at the beginning of things shut down time actually slightly before weirdly enough i had it i had been reading it and i was looking at the date and so this is where the this is where the conspiracy widens right so hear me out this may be the only time anyone ever talks about this ever because I don't know the last time anyone thought about this, but so in my adaptation of this, I'm taking the words of Donald Keene, who is the translator of this book. um, And I'm kind of, I'm basically reading his translation, which arguably is one of the best translations. Uh, Strangely enough, this is one of the first books he ever read in someone else's translation, but I'm kind of taking his translation. And then I sort of spend a lot of time meandering into these other places because at the beginning of you know, in, in like May of 2020, when things were, were going in, into the, what I like to call the deep place, the place that I thought we were going to continue going in. My, okay, one friend of mine was playing this video game called Ghosts of Tsushima, which takes place in about the 1280s, I'm going to guess. It turns out that the author of this book, Yoshida Kenko, was born around then. And he was writing this stuff in the 1330s. So this is considered like, this is sort of considered, it's kind of a a banger classic that really precedes this period in Japanese history where everything becomes Japanese. There's like 250 years of like, dude, like all this stuff, it was from there and from there. Our emperor's not particularly interested in governing. 
let's do tea ceremony, let's do rock garden. And we're going to like really do this sort of classical Japanese thing where they take something, they edit out all of the parts that they don't really like, and then make it kind of perfect from a Japanese standpoint and then rename it. It's like, this is something that island cultures do a lot. And um, weirdly enough, because of the go back in time even further, this gets good. You'll like this. Okay, so um, so in that 1280s time, and I think a, about a decade prior, I don't totally know these dates, were the first instance, instances of tsunamis. And so the first kamikaze was experienced. And then another, I'm guessing, I think it's like 14 years later, the second one happened. The uh, they were the first. Out the Mongolian fleets. Yeah. Yeah. So here's my theory, and I'm not right, but it doesn't matter. At the time, what I was thinking about, because also in February of 2020, Donald Keene had just passed away, and it was kind of sad. Like he's like the number one best translator of of Japanese works into English, and it kind of just got covered up by the you know the storm of news. And so I, I got into this book, and in looking at the history, if you think about it, so and and I mentioned this in like the podcast version of the Kanko piece, like. The Mongolian army was crossing the Korean peninsula, going into Japan. Then the Japanese army, which, you know, they reported that they were wildly outnumbered. And then a divine intervention came in and wiped out the Mongols. And then they had to go back and then they they won. And then over the course of that next chunk of time, the the Japanese uh, army had like built up the seawall around that area. And then when the Mongolian army, after sending these incredible threats again, they cross over that peninsula and attempt to invade again. And then they're, they're, they wildly outnumber the Japanese, but the seawall keeps them at bay. Another tsunami comes down and they just get picked off. Then when they retreat, right, in the 13, third, mid-1330s is when we see this first emergence of the bubonic plague. And that... They have been, this is my theory, I do not know this history, but this is my awesome COVID fantasy. Then it passes over the spice trail, it goes in the other direction, and then we have the Decameron, and we have all these things over in Europe, and it doesn't ever go to Japan. And then, so like in some some weird, in the conspiracy matrix, right, Yoshida Kenko lives, he was born in 1280s, he lives in this time where only through divine intervention does he ful- he like kind of fulfills this weird prophecy that Japan has been cons- continually politically conspiring to uphold that they're the chosen people, but he sort of fulfills it and lives to sort of tip this kind of, um, y- you know, in retrospect, kind of tip the scales of history towards this aesthetic revolution. And it all just kind of happens to avoid complete decimation by the plague. Other topics I researched during this time was uh, during the smallpox epidemics, they had these little red deities that they would kind of pray to that would fight off smallpox, which are really pretty fascinating. Um, anyway, that, yeah, that, so that kind of, that piece was sort of born out of this weird obsession with like, maybe I've discovered some bonkers like i've discovered that moment in back to the future where i maybe wouldn't have been born and i have to talk about it like you know <laughs> no that is that is excellent that is exactly the kind of stuff that i want to learn more 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, to me, it doesn't matter if it's right or not, right? It's just like yeah. that those like in retrospect, the like the pins on the map are like, whoa, dude. Like, That's so great. Also, I feel like, Ken, that was like right up your alley of like, we got military, we got history, we got all this stuff. Yeah. So I'm really just enjoying watching you respond to that. I also am going to steal the phrase, I'm not wrong, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, that's perfect. Well, I, my, my, <laughs> I mean to say, my truth is just as valid, even if it's complete garbage. Like, it doesn't, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, like also like maybe a divine force intervened and wiped out that army or maybe it never happened. We have no way of knowing. Yeah, exactly. So thinking about things that you're, you've been obsessed with or like, you know, beautiful rabbit holes that you've fallen down during the pandemic. Are there any beautiful rabbit holes that you're falling down right now? Things that are, you're really curious about that maybe you're gonna be working on stuff like that? Yeah, totally. Right now I'm working on working on a children's book about brown paintings, like the way that my, my child makes these amazing paintings. And then we have this deal where we kind of have to agree to stop at a certain point. Otherwise they just become the everything painting. And then I'm also working on, uh, I'm working, I'm making an invention and I'm working on a piece about the future of, this is the, the, the idea board. I'm working on a piece about the future of social justice and arts funding, but I'm not going to really get it. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm working on a user contributed website where people leave very honest reviews for performances that they've seen. And those reviews are re-performed by other people just to sort of like, I mean, it is kind of like a, a troll base, but there's a lot of things it's, that I it's think like are a way to just like supplant all critics yeah yeah i think or just have have people's emotional reactions to things get expressed in a way that maybe isn't cool but needs to be expressed <laughs> thank you so much like uh and i'm i'm looking forward to like every everything that we were researching about your stuff is just like it goes everywhere but then like when it's actually made there's like a laser sharp focus so it's 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 all like really compelling so thank you for letting us step into your mind space for for just a little bit on this thank you very much um and in our last minute or two is there anywhere that we can see your work happening in the next little while anything for you to well, uh, former SLC grad Marcella Murray uh, and David Newman and I will be mounting our show at UNC Chapel Hill in the fall. Uh, it will be uh, it's a remount of distances l larger than this are not confirmed. And then we're also working on a piece there with their so Southern Futures Initiative, which is a really interesting arts program to kind of reevaluate the history of the South, which is something that I mean, pick a conspiracy i'm down like that's so wild and i feel like there's something that's probably torn. i just actually had a big show where i i made a giant fog screen uh at the japan society so no one can see that show but i really had a hit a personal milestone got a write-up in tricycle magazine which is the buddhist publication congrats that's awesome yeah you gotta hit them you know yeah 
Well, thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you. The Performance Lab podcast was brought to you by Contemporary Performance Network. In association with the Sarah Lawrence College Theater MFA program. For more information, please visit our websites at www.contemporaryperformance.com or www.slctheater.com. Thank you.